and afterwards. But for now, we have approached the monologue portion of Sunday. I was praying about this this morning and felt like it was, it would honor the Lord and maybe encourage you all to share this. Uh, yesterday, it was, it was clear to everyone that I won the dance contest among the kids. They voted. My score was infinity. So I just want y'all to know it's more going on than just preaching. There's more talents up here. And you had to be here yesterday to see that. Uh, Tola and Alicia, stand up. Darren and Viviana, if you're here, stand up. JP, stand up if you're here. Obviously, Pastor Mike was there as well. And I don't see Darren and Viv. They're serving again in children's ministry. All right. These are the people who yesterday made it possible. I don't know if it was the kids coming into the room being open, but all the organized games I had didn't even have to happen. They just was running around, <laughs> chasing them, chasing Tolu, chasing JP. My son, stand up, Beezer. My son was there playing with the kids. They was chasing them, and me and Mike was just sitting there laughing like, man. Because when we grew up, all we did was run around, but now kids are in the house a lot. So when they came in and saw they could run, it was just like, <laughs> they was moving. And they would be like, man, we're hot, you know. We had like four water breaks in the first hour. Thank you all. Thank you very much for giving up your time, doing all of it. And then the Connellys, they came in, they dropped their kids off, got to spend some time, then they came and helped finish setting up the chairs. So could you stand up, please? Thank you. LaShawn, who leads the chair ministry, would have been offended had they not shown up. <laughs> now, Mike Tolo and JP was doing a good job. All right, the reason why I couldn't wait to get to the Tower of Babel was because once you understand what happens at Babel, it explains a lot of the Bible. But I realized as I was really doing this that my original plan was to explain what happens at Babel and then jump into a bunch of stories in the Old Testament and make those connections there. But as I was thinking it, really, after Babel, there are essentially five main themes that happen in the Bible. And once you understand these five main themes, the Bible just makes sense in ways that you've never understood it before. Last week, we looked at one of them abruptly about language, how God confused the language and then redeemed the language in Acts. Jesus being the word, and so all of the language is now under one word, the word of God. But there are four other main themes that come from the Bible. So what I decided to do was change the plan a little bit. Instead of hitting all these Old Testament stories and making the connections, I thought the best thing to do was explain the five themes that come after the Tower of Babel. 
And once these five things, or you see these in the scriptures, I would say that you will understand a vast majority of the Bible in ways that probably most people do not. So these next three to four weeks will be the most important sermons that I've ever taught as it relates to understanding the Bible. And unless you are opposed to learning and understanding, there's no way your Bible's not going to make sense on a whole different level. Before we begin with today's theme, today is where it begins significantly. Before we get to today's theme, there's two things that we must remember. And some of you are newer to this, so you haven't been a part of this supernatural storyline series. So there may be things that not make sense to you. So let me say two things that you must remember to process today's message and the next three sermons after this, if you're here. The first thing you have to understand is that the Bible is not linear. It's not linear. Progressive revelation is not linear. It does have a beginning and an end, but often what confuses us about the Bible is that we follow a story and then all of a sudden another book comes in and we have no idea what it's talking about, and then we go to another book that says some of the same stories, and then we come out of that, and then we go back to the book that we were reading about and the narrative that we thought we were following, and then all of a sudden come the Psalms and the Proverbs, and then this comes, and then this comes, and we don't know what happens, and so we just think, well, the New Testament is, is easier to follow. <laughs> Progressive revelation is not, it's not linear in a sense that it's A to Z. It's A to E, M, L, K, H, I. Thank you, right? <laughs> I was waiting for somebody to follow the bounce of ball, right? There is a beginning and an end, but often the way we understand the Bible and what's happening is we trace themes, which we, which we theologically call this biblical theology. See, systematic theology is when you trace concepts and then you look at all the verses that the Bible says about it. So what does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? What does the Bible say about Jesus? What does the Bible say about man? What is about, that's systematic theology. Whereas, but biblical theology is when you trace the theme from its beginning to its end. We've been doing that in this series quite a bit. But it's not linear. So sometimes to understand certain things, you're not going to find it in the next verse in the story. So if you're reading Genesis 11 and you get to the Tower of Babel and you get to verse 9 and then it goes into something totally different. So when people were saying, man, Pastor Kurt, I'm trying to kind of figure out where you're going with the next message and where do you see it in Genesis 11? I said, well, what if it's not in Genesis 11? Because what happened at Babel, what I'm going to talk about, is not in Genesis 11. God explained it later, much later. So progressive revelation is not linear. You cannot follow this straight through because God did not want it to be that way. The second, which those of you who have been in this series, this is a dumb moment for you. But the second thing you have to know is that the divine counsel is real. It's real. Let me explain what the divine counsel is from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Here's what it says. The divine counsel is a term used by Hebrew scholars for the heavenly host 
the assembly of divine beings who administer the affairs of the cosmos under Yahweh, the God of Israel. So the divine council are supernatural beings that God has created that he works with and against to govern the affairs of humanity. It says all ancient Mediterranean cultures had some conception of a divine council, including Israel. However, Israelite religion's divine council was distinct. The structure of the Israelite divine council has implications to understanding God and the unseen world in biblical theology. Now, many of us have overlooked even obvious passages like the Ten Commandments. Listen to how the Ten Commandments begin, the first two. Here's what God is saying to this newly, newly organized people called Israel. Here's what God says. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is seen in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to serve them for the Lord your God, I'm a jealous God. So God initiates talking to his people and the first laws he says is do not worship other gods. Now, you and I have been trained to think that there are no other gods. He's just talking about idols, but that's not true. Now, there are no other gods like God, which is why he gives himself the designation, the most high God. You don't have to be the most high when there are no other gods below. He says he's the most high God because God, even though there are no gods like him, he has no problem identifying supernatural beings, even the ones that rebelled against him, as gods. That's how the biblical narrative plays out. You and I get tripped up because we think when it says heavenly host, heaven is only the good things, but heavenly host is a description of all supernatural beings, good or evil. God doesn't change the name of supernatural beings when they rebel just because they rebel. That's why Satan's, it's called Satan's angels. It's not Satan's demons or they're still sons of God because that's how he created them, even if they rebelled against him. He's not offended to call other beings that he created God. He's offended when we treat them like they're gods on his level. Now, there's a reason why he calls them gods, and we'll see that in two weeks. The scripture will often say things like, there is none like Yahweh, which is true. But it often affirms other beings as gods, even when they work against them. So when you and I read passages where God is saying that they're gods, don't dismiss what he's saying because it doesn't feel comfortable to you. Believe what he's saying because God wanted us to know it from that perspective. Beings that have worked against God, when you get to Babel, God declared war. Babel is different than what happened previously. You see, prior to Babel, God was reacting to the rebellion of divine human beings. So you got Satan in the garden of Adam and Eve, and he judges him and punishes him, puts Adam and Eve out of the garden, humanity goes. Then you get in Genesis 6, angels who rebel and go to heaven and have sex with women, 
and then create this race called the Nephilim, and then these angels come down and, and teach humanity all these things, magic arts, astrology, all these things that they shouldn't. And then God puts the whole world under a flood except for eight human beings and animals. But at Babel, God declares war. This is a different rebellion because this is a rebellion after God already punished the world for sin. Humanity knows that, and they still rebel. And so God declares war on humanity and the divine beings that they worship. Let's go back to Genesis 11, beginning in verse 5, so you can see what I mean. And I quote, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. I ended last week's message saying that when it says the Lord dispersed them, that that was the key phrase. What does that mean? Why is that a declaration of war? Well, as I stated a few minutes ago, the Bible's not linear, so we have to jump to another passage that gives us insight into what happened at Babel. So we'll start with Deuteronomy 32, beginning in verse 7. This is Moses writing to the group of Israelites who are going into the promised land. And he is, this is actually, a, this chapter is called a Song of Moses which I think is interesting when you read the words. I'm not sure like what the melodies were like when God was saying, when it, I'm sure it was, it was interesting. But in this song, he is talking to people who are inheriting the promised land that their parents did not because they didn't believe they were disobedient. And he's warning them of certain things, but he's reminding them of truths that they must understand as they're going into a place where there are multiple gods that he's wanting them not to worship. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 7. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. This passage is giving details about what happened at Babel. One of the ways that we know this is that at this point in biblical history, there was no other time when God divided up mankind. There's no other story. There's not some secret narrative. Moses is not writing to people about things that they would know nothing about some Gnostic revelation from God, but he's writing to them, explaining and clarifying what they already understand, but he's telling them this is what really happened. 
It said, God divided up the nations, divided up mankind according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Moses is writing to Jews about events that they know about, and he's clarifying them. This is why he begins this portion saying, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. Well, what will the elders tell them? What's the context of him saying, ask them, and they will tell you? Well, tell us what? about the days of old. Okay, there's a lot of days of old. So what specifically are you talking about, Moses, that they're going to tell us about the days of old? Verse 8, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. This narrative is giving backdrop to Babel and is explaining further what happened when God dispersed humanity. He wants people to understand this is why your current world is the way that it is. And he brings up two realities here. One is that God divided up mankind and fixed the borders. And two, according to the number of the sons of God. In Genesis 11, back to Babel, here's what Moses is referring to. Here's what that verse says, Genesis 11, verse 8. It just says, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth. In Deuteronomy 32, it says, he gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind and fixed the borders. Now, on the face of it, this might seem like a good thing. You know, if you come up to me and say, hey, Pastor Kirk, guess what? I just found out I got an inheritance. You know, you get an inheritance, that's when you're like, whoa. You know, Scooby-Doo, mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, if I was one of them name and claim it, churches, it'd be like, brother, you sow a seed to the church and the Lord will. <laughs> but we're not that type of church. The Lord told us don't put ATMs in the lobby, so we're not going to do that. You know, some churches do that, but that's not what we're doing today. On the face of it, this seems like a good thing because inheritance seems like a good thing, but this is not a good thing what God is saying. This inheritance is God disinheriting humanity. This is what he's saying. This is not a positive thing. This is not the kind of inheritance that you and I hope we get from a relative that we've never met that just one day decided, in my will, I'm going to name this person. This inheritance is God disinheriting humanity, basically saying, I am done with you all. You have sinned against me. I'm done. I'm done. I'm going to divide you up, put you out in the world, and you do you. I'm done. That's what God is saying. And there was a specific way he divided them up according to the sons of God. Now, some of your translations may say children of Israel or sons of Israel. And I'm not going to go into all the details of that. What you're basically looking at is different translations. One, there's different ways that people translate the Old Testament. There's the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew language. And then there's the Septuagint, which is 
the Old Testament in Greek. And then you have stuff like the Dead Sea Scrolls and all of that that agree with the Septuagint translation, not the Masoretic translation. The Masoretic translation says the sons of Israel or children of Israel. But the Greek translation in the, in the Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls say the sons of God. There's a lot that could be said here, but let me just say this. Here's a glaring problem with the translation sons of Israel. Here's the problem with that translation. Now, remember, your Bible is just a translation of a different language. So don't say, you're disagreeing with the Bible, Pastor Kurt. I don't know what the other translations agree with this. The problem with this is, listen to the verse again. When the Most High gave up, gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders according to the pe people, according to the number of the sons of Israel. That's what, he, that's what some translations say. Here's the problem with that. At this juncture, when God did this at Babel, Israel didn't exist. Right. It wasn't a nation. It didn't exist yet. At, at that point, God just said, I'm dividing humanity up. Israel didn't exist. So we can't divide humanity up according to the children of Israel or the sons of Israel because it wasn't even an established nation yet. As far as they knew, there was no, as a matter of fact, we'll look at this in a second, how long it took before Israel became an established nation. So just logically, it doesn't make sense. But because there's too much other things to talk about, I'll leave that there. We can come back to that another time. Well, let me say this also. There are a few other passages which we're going to look at today that would disagree with the sons of Israel, children of Israel, in terms of Babel. They wouldn't agree with that. That they would agree with it. It was a supernatural thing that God did. It's almost like this. God is saying, since humanity, you want to sin against me and worship other gods, then I'm going to give you those other gods to worship. Here you go. This is what happened at Babel. When God dispersed, it was saying, all right, since you want to sin against me, I'm going to give you those gods to sin with. Now, these gods, remember where they learned these gods from, right? We heard this a couple messages ago when we looked at the angels that rebelled and taught humanity all these other things. Now, we looked at a book that's not inspired like the Bible. We looked at the book of Enoch, but it gave some wonderful insight. And the Jews who understood the Bible believed that portions of Enoch were worth agreeing with. And here's what we read from Enoch chapter 8. And then we're going to cross-reference it with something that God says in his word. You won't have this up, so you have to listen. And Azazel taught the people the art of making swords and knives and shields and breastplates. And he showed to their chosen ones bracelets, decorations, shadowing of the eye with antimony, ornamentation, the beauty of eyelids, all the precious stones, and all the colored tinctures and alchemy. And there were many wicked ones, and they committed adultery and erred, and all their conduct became corrupt. A Amasuerus taught incantations and the cutting of roots. And Amaros, the resolving of incantations. And Barakiel, astrology. And Kokrael, the knowledge of the signs. And Tamal taught the seeing of the stars. And Adriel taught the course of the moon as well as the deception of man. And the people cried and their voice reached 
unto heaven. Many Jews would believe this is the case because God says things like this in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Here's what he says. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. This is critical language to understand what's happening, especially why the Old Testament is the way it is and why we experience spiritual warfare today and why there are so many religions today. Even today, people talk like the universe, right? I was watching an interview with, with uh, Erica Badu or some other dude on MSNBC, and she was just talking about the universe and this and that and how things work through the universe. And the origin of that is Genesis 6. The sun, the moon, the stars, the universe. God is saying here, don't worship them. When you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to serve them, to worship them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to other peoples. God is saying, listen, I gave the rest of the world those gods to worship. He's saying, I allotted to the rest of the nations, let them worship the sun and the moon and the stars, not you. See, this is looking back to Babel when God dispersed humanity. God is disinheriting humanity and saying, okay, so you want to worship the sun and moon and stars? Then go do it. Go do it. Go do it. You have them and they have you. But he tells them, do not bow down to them because the Lord gave that, them, to the other nations, not you. This is peppered all throughout the Old Testament. This reality that the Lord was like, okay. It's similar to Romans 1. Romans 1, right? It says people... They worshiped the creation instead of the creator. So God gave them over to a debased mind. It's like God is like, okay, if you want to continue to worship these things, then I'm not going to stop you. Go ahead. Go ahead. So the inheritance that God gave to sinful humanity was sinful deities. At Babel, God gave humanity over to be under the authority of other cosmic beings. He declared war. You can have the gods that you want to worship. But then he says, I know, me, I'm going to create a new people. 
I'm going to create a new people. Last week, someone asked the question, was it difficult for all these other religions and stuff? And I was just like fighting the answer because I said, ah, not really. Because what God is saying is, look, I'm going to give you all the people in the world. You can take them. You worship those gods. And I'm going to start again with the new people. And I'm coming for you. Divine beings, you can have them. You want these beings? Take them. I'm going to start again, but I'm not going to destroy the world this time. I'm going to start with one person, and from them, build a nation, slowly but surely, that will not follow you, that will not worship you. This is what's happening. In verse 8 of Deuteronomy 32, it says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, I didn't mention this last week because I knew that this was coming this week and, and, and subsequent to this. But in Genesis chapter 10, that's sort of theologically called the table of nations. It's when they list all the different descendants of Noah's three sons. It's called the table of nations. Now, most theologians would say, and I would agree that in that table of nations, there's 70 nations. 70. 70 different nations that come from Noah's three sons, at least recorded in Genesis 10. And then in Genesis 11, obviously, those nations get dispersed on the earth. So there are some that say that when it says, according to the number of the sons of God, that God gave 70 divine beings jurisdiction over each individual nation. Because it says due to the fact that they were according to the number of the sons of God. So there are 70 nations and there are 70 divine beings. It's an interesting thought that we'll come back to next week. But the reality here is God gave humanity over to divine beings and he does this he says in verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, remember, when this was written, they had already experienced that. So this is more looking back to what God was doing so that they can understand that. They knew who Jacob was when they heard that. So God at Babel gave the nations over and then was like, all right, I'm going to have my own nation. Jacob is my portion. Jacob will be that nation. But Jacob didn't exist at Babel. He didn't exist. So in Genesis 11, you have the Tower of Babel and a brief genealogy. And then the Bible shifts completely. The Bible shifts completely. And now all of a sudden, there's a guy named Abraham or Abram. Just completely. If you were here a few months ago, you heard this timeline, but here's essentially a timeline of how things played out. In 2247, people believe that that's when the Tower of Babel happened. So 2247 BC is when the Tower of Babel happened. 
1922 B.C. is when God calls Abram. So from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12, 320 years of human history passed. That's how the Bible does it. Does it from Malachi in the Old Testament to Matthew 1, 400 years of human history have passed. Now, it's important to know that because when we read it, we go from Genesis 11, and then the next day, Abraham is, that's how we read things, right? We just read like the next day, Abraham was, you know, we have no idea how long that, that Adam and Eve were in the garden before Satan came. To us, it was just like, he made them, and then the next day, here comes Satan. Hey, we, we have no idea. We have no idea. I don't, we don't know how long he was there. And people, you can speculate all day. You just be shooting from half court and find out if you can get to heaven when you make it. But this can be tracked because we know when events happened in human history. And so this is accurate, which I believe that it is, because I've studied this and looked at it closely, and I've seen consistency in this. That means after the Tower of Babel, when God gave humanity over to other divine beings and said, have at it, he waited 320 years, 320 years, 12 generations of people before saying, okay, now it's my turn. I've given them a three, three centuries of a head start. And now I'm going to take someone from their world and say, you're going to follow me. God chooses Abram out of these nations and through him begin a new nation. And everything now becomes God the allotment of God choosing Abraham to fight against the cosmic powers of darkness and the humanity that they have jurisdiction over. So he chooses Abram out of these nations and begins a new nation. So the Bible takes a turn from Genesis 11 to Genesis 12, and Genesis 12 through 50, as a matter of fact, Genesis 12 until Malachi 4, 6, the Bible is all about this nation. This people, you hear about other surrounding nations, but God is not concerned with what's happening in all these other nations except when it intervenes with what's happening to Israel. So if they have to fight these nations, if they're, God's going to use these nations to judge Israel. For the most part, our Bibles don't get into all of these except when there's conflict. The Philistines and certain nations. But most of us, we just read the names. The Rephaim. This ite and that ite, these kites and that kite. We have to go to their literature to find out what they were doing. Because God's concerned with, I'm going to bring up a people, and now that's the focus. So from Genesis 12 through Malachi 4, 6, we are essentially watching a reality TV show of God interacting with people and them, some of them believing in him, doing what he, a lot of them not. God's judgment, but then he remembered, ah, I promised, uh, I got I to gotta preserve a people. I can't wipe them out again. It's a reality TV show. And it starts with Abram. And then Abram has some children. And then Abram has a grandson named Jacob who wrestles with God, and God changes his name to Israel. And then Israel has a bunch of sons. And ten of his sons and two of his grandsons become the nation of Israel. 
and God goes on the offensive. Now I have a nation of people who will rebel against your gods and your nation. But in order to establish them, I'm going to let them be slaves to your gods and your nation. And after a couple hundred years, I'm going to come get them and then tell them how to worship me among the nations. And this is why in the Old Testament, it's the nations against Israel. Because it's the divine beings against God. God goes on the offensive. This is why that hostility is there. This explains the hostility between God and the other religions. But it also explains the hostility specifically between God and the other gods. Pepper throughout the Bible, you will find verses like this. Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. Now you got to understand what's happening in these types of verses. This is God talking directly to cosmic powers of evil. And he's letting us get a snapshot. God put this in his word, I believe, because he wasn't going to talk to them directly. It's like you can read about it like everybody else. He calls them out. He says, you all are not governing these people rightly. You see this pepper throughout. But then you get to Psalm 82. And we've looked at this psalm before just to prove the reality of divine counsel. But we're going to look now again at this because this is after God has given humanity to the gods. Now God is going to speak to those gods about how they've governed humanity. And here's what he says in Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine counsel. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And then it has a quotation. Because verse 1 is the psalmist just setting the stage. Verse 2, this is God, Yahweh, speaking to the other divine beings that he calls gods. And he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. End quote. And then the psalmist says, arise, O God. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. So here is God saying, what are you doing? Humanity is a mess. It's a mess. He says, you, are, you judge unjustly. You show partiality to the wicked. You give justice to the... 
He says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Rescue the weak and needy. In verse, in verse 5, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. In other words, these people don't know what's up and down. They don't even know who I am. You all are supposed to have judged according to who I am, but you've judged, you've led them according to who you are, and now humanity is a mess. It's a mess. And so, I'm going to punish you for this. You are God's. Sons of the Most High. That statement means God is saying, you are divine beings that I have created. He, did not, he didn't disinherit them as the name of sons. They're still sons of the Most High because he created them. He said, all of you. You are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So supernatural beings aren't supposed to die. But God is saying, since you wanted worship from humanity, I'm going to judge you like I will humanity. This is a divine council room scene that we get brought into. God did not have to put this in the Bible. There are scenes like this peppered throughout the Bible where you see God sitting amongst these supernatural beings. We see it in Revelation. The throne room. We see it in Ezekiel chapter 1. When you see these beings flying around, cherubim, seraphim, saying holy, holy. We see it in Isaiah chapter 6. We see it in Daniel 7, Daniel 10, Daniel 4. You see these scenes of like this consistent interaction with divine beings and humanity. And most of it, most of them are negative. Most of them are negative. This is a negative scene, but this is God saying, all right, you guys are going to be judged for this. The psalmist sets it up in verse 1, that God takes his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. In the midst. This is essentially giving us a picture that God walks in and stands in the middle of all the other gods. So they can all see him. He sees all of them. He calls them gods. And he said he's holding judgment. Further proving that he is the most high God. He stands in the midst of them. When I was, when I was locked up, one of the, we used to take pictures sometimes and send them to people. And when you'd look at a picture of people in jail, everybody was posed. Right, everybody's posed, kneeling down, trying to look like we like it here, we love it here. <laughs> I hated them pictures. But you took them because it was your way to interact with the outside world. But when people saw those pictures, the guy who was in the middle, you knew was the most gangster. The guy who's in the middle, who everybody's around, that's the one who's the most respected. I remember when I saw this picture of my man Manny. Real street dude, killer. And I don't know how he was getting out, but he was getting out. <laughs> and he sent us a picture, and we looked at the photo, and we all started laughing because Manny was just in the middle like this, and everybody was around him like, like we with him. You know how when you with a celebrity, you see people point like, it's like he's in the middle. 
He's the most important. He's the most feared. He's the most vicious of all of them. And every prison picture I looked at, I was like, I always ask, who is this? Oh, yeah, that's, I was like, okay, yeah. Because whoever is in the middle is that dude. God is in the middle. He's that dude. He's in the midst. Here are all these other gods. Let me walk in the middle real quick. Y'all stand around me. And then he brings his accusations. Verse 2. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? They have, what are they going to say to him? Then he commands them. He starts with a question, how long will you do this? Then he commands them, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. But God isn't saying it because he expects them to do it. You know, when God speaks, God knows that people are going to disobey or obey. But the reason why God gives these commands is so that you can't stand before him and say, well, you never said do that. They can't say, well, you gave us to humanity. You never said what to do with them, so we, we taught them how to worship us. So God has it down. Now, they know that's not true. But God has it down in his word, too. Give justice to the weak. And the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Anyone in this room would be hard-pressed to look at any other religion in human history and see this take place. These gods did not obey what God said. Now, we don't know the timing of when this happened. It's in Psalm 82 to us. We know when the psalm was written. but That doesn't mean it was happening in that moment. But at some point, God stood in the midst of these gods. It had to be after Babel. It could have been before Abraham. And he says, give justice to the weak. Verse 4, rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Verse 5, the worst, of, the worst of all, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Man, is that phrase going to mean something in two weeks? Why would the foundations of the earth be shaking because people are disobedient? Man, is that going to make sense in two weeks? This is a snapshot from God's perspective, what the other deities, what other religions do to humanity. And so he gives a judgment. You are God's sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. He's explaining this little tiff we got going on. This war is going to come to an end. This war that we have, this spiritual warfare between you and Israel, and then later on, you and the church, it's coming to an end. And you all are not going to win this one. And then verse 8, the psalmist, inspired by God, adds this verse. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. So here you hear God, he disinherited the nations. I don't want them. You can have them. You guys are great for each other. And then it says here, you shall inherit all the nations. God is saying, okay, I'm taking people back. I disinherited them, but now I'm taking them back. I'm taking back people. 
I'm going to re-inherit people that I've disinherited. People that weren't my people. Those people are called Gentiles, like many of us in this room. God's saying, I'm going to re-inherit these people. So at Babel, he disperses the people at, at, at Babel. He's giving them over to divine beings. These divine beings lead people to worship themselves instead of God. God decides to start again with a new humanity via Abraham. This sets in motion various religions in the world because those beings disobey God. That sets in motion why the nations are against Israel and Israel is against the nations in the Old Testament. This is why all of the commands and laws of God are like strictly for you not to be like these people. They weren't even about like necessarily like this is what you, it was all, the te- all those laws are what not to do because all the nations that you're around, this is what they do. Now, why is God moving them, this little nation, in the midst of all these other nations? The nations in the Old Testament are against Israel. The nations, humanity in the New Testament is against the church. God dispersed the nations and declared war. And spiritual warfare begins at that moment. And the next step is Abraham. And then Israel. And then Jesus. And then the church. But this is only the second theme of the five themes that we have to look at. You cannot fully understand the Bible, the mind of the Jew in the Bible who wrote it and who heard it, the actions and the words of Jesus the mission of Paul, and the reason for much of the conflict even in the Middle East today, unless you understand the rest of the themes that come after battle. And so next week, we'll look at the most important one after God initiating spiritual warfare against humanity and against the gods, but then reclaims humanity. Let's pray. Father, for some of us, it may be a challenge to think that you gave humanity over to cosmic powers of darkness, supernatural beings that would create false religions and lead people to worship sun, moon, and stars and and create this dynamic. There are people who I know of that have been really offended at that. 
But Lord, if you were to do the opposite of what people wanted, then you would essentially be forcing people to follow you. You already warned the people through floods and through the narratives that were passed down from Noah and his sons, and people still chose to do the opposite of what you wanted them to do. And so, Lord, in your wisdom and your righteous judgment, you said, okay. Since you want to sin with those gods, then you can be with those gods. Lord, you declared war on this set in motion a significant battle. And you laid it out in your word masterfully. So, Father, I pray that over the next three weeks, as we look at these other themes, that you would illuminate our eyes, our hearts, and our confidence for what we call spiritual warfare. You've put it in your word, and it's incredible. And as we see it, help us to believe it and then to live it. Lord, if there's anyone here who has been among the other nations, the other gods, worshiping, and not even another religion, but even just out of they don't believe in anything, Lord, you describe that these people are without understanding, without knowledge. These people are lost. I pray that if they're here today, that they have a chance to be found. If they're watching online, that there's a chance to believe. You brought everyone who's here in person or on video to hear this reality. That yes, you did disinherit the nations. You dispersed them. But you also said you're going to re-inherit the nations. And we play a role in that. So Lord, give us grace, patience, and understanding over these next couple weeks so that your word is truly more magnificent to us than it's ever been. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, we have a few questions in uh, right now. Uh, and um, the first one we'll ask is, how do the nations established after the Tower of Babel relate to modern nations in the world today? Well, I think, so sometimes, like the world is the same world, right? So there's not a different world. But what happens in the world is the names and places change, mm -hmm. right? So I used to live, I used to be in a neighborhood called Bell Haven. And now it's called, uh, what's it called, Mac now? Summer Ridge. Yeah, Summer Ridge. And when I see it, I see Bell Haven. Other people see Summer Ridge. It's got a gate up and all that stuff that wasn't there back, that should have been there back in the day. But the name has changed, but that neighborhood is still that neighborhood. Well, people got dispersed all over the world, but the world is only so big, so people stay in a relatively, in the regional. People stay in their country. There's just generations. People just grow up. So like, but the names change, right? So in the Old Testament, Babel, Babylon is called Babylon. And we think, well, where is it? Well, it's modern day. It's Iraq. Right? In the Old Testament, you know, this 
Macedonia is now Greece. You know, there's, there's just the names change. And so the people who have migrated through all the world, they just live. They, just like you. You grow up here. You might, some of you move to this location, but many of us grew up in this area. You'll raise your family and you'll die from this area. You might move or you might not, but a lot of people just stay in this. So as the world is put out there by God, dispersed throughout the earth, they have families, they build cities, and they grow, and they live, and they talk in their languages, and obviously people, different people come and go, but for the most part, they stay where they're from. And so they just develop into what we call modern nations today. All of the nations today existed, or the, the places of land existed in the Old Testament. All different names back then. And so now we just have to figure out, okay, what was it? So you, well, you can find these cool maps that'll be like, Israel and Jesus's day, Israel and David's day, right? Or Palestine in his day. And then you think, oh, and you realize, oh, places that Jesus went in the New Testament actually matter and are strategic because of what they were in the Old Testament. But to us, it's just Caesarea Philippi. We have no idea what it is. That's what it is to us. They don't call it that today, though. And it wasn't called that in the Old Testament. So, the, so a lot of nations, just, just like anything else, you, you dis God disperses you, you have families, you grow, you build cities, and you keep going, and you take that cultural framework with you. And, you. and you just raise your families, and that just goes on and on and on until the Lord comes back. Um, <clears throat> you, this was from um, the um, extra-biblical um, reference you made uh, to Azazel and them. So a person asks, is um, wearing eyeliner or eyeshadow, welding metal to fix things, or using herbal remedies sin? So basically, is, is Sephora is sinning because they just sell makeup products? <laughs> um, I don't think so. I think here's what the Bible says in the New Testament about that. It tells women to not let that be their beauty, but their inside be their beauty. It tells women in Corinth, don't, don't use those things and let that be the beauty. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, tells a woman, if you're married to a, a, a husband who's not believing in the word, don't make your physical beauty be the beauty, but let your character. So I don't think in the New Testament that is sinful. Now, I think it can be vanity, right? So it can be vanity. So let's, be, you know, let's keep it 100, right? It can be vanity, like you can put makeup on and it, you know, it can be vanity. It can be, you know, insecure, hiding insecurity, fear of man, not respecting that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Like it can be those things. I think there is a degree in which a lot of plastic surgery is really vanity. It's not necessarily medically necessary. It's just I don't like my nose. So it's like, okay. And, but then I think there's a judgment in that because as people get more plastic surgery, they look less and less human. Like you look at celebrities and you'd be like, oh my gosh, that's such and such? She looks like a thundercat. Like, what happened? Like, you don't understand what happened. That's what it, they look like cats to me. I don't, God don't get it. They just, at the more, they just, they just look like cats. It's like the island of Dr. Moreau, the sequel out this joint. I don't know what it's, I don't know what it is. There might be proof of evolution because people start looking like animals when they get a lot of plastic surgery. I just, I just think, I don't know. But I think there is a degree in which makeup can be sinful, but no, I don't think so at all. I think God is like, all right, I'm just going to redeem it. It's not that big of a deal. It's not listed in any of the reasons why the wrath of God is coming. Right. And women who wear too much eyeliner, you know, right. and women who mess up their foundation, the wrath of God is coming. It's not, that's not happening. 
use the right lipstick color. That's not the right lip for your skin color. No, the wrath of God isn't coming for those things. So, it's a good question, though. So uh, this is. Uh, Actually, let me say one more thing. Okay. Actually, even the use of plants and roots, those things aren't even sinful. What maintained being sinful is the worship, is astrological things, divination. That maintained as something. But all the, like even we use, we get a lot of medicine and stuff from plants. I'm not talking about weed, but I'm just talking about <laughs> other things that we get from plants. I'm not talking about that. We get cocaine from plants too. They, they all come from plants. That's not what I mean. That stuff is what God didn't want to happen, you know. That peyote the Indians were smoking, they, that wasn't good from the Lord. They were seeing all types of spirits, and I get it, because whatever that was, was something else. But, but God redeemed a lot of that stuff. All right, this is a, a two-part question. Um, uh, were the other gods, lowercase g, uh, demonic or simply poor leaders? And if they were evil, how did they have a right to be in the Lord's presence or in the assembly? Yeah, so there's a difference. That's a great question. So there's a difference in being in the Lord's presence and then being in the Lord's presence, right? Which you mean it's the same word, emphasis, right? There's a difference between standing before the Lord and then being allowed to be in the Lord's presence because you're from him. There's a difference. So if the Lord is, God is omnipresent, so he sees every sinful, evil act that's done. You can be in the Lord's presence but there's a difference between worshiping them. And even as believers, right, there are times where you might have a particular worship service where you just sense the presence of the Lord, right? You know, when y'all do some of them worship services, you just feel it like, oh, man, this house is almost shaking, right? And it ain't because I'm jumping up and down in worship. It's just, it's just shaking, right? You sense like the Lord's presence. There are times you'd be like, man, worship just hit today. Why? Because you feel so you can be in the Lord's presence, but you're not allowed to be in the Lord's presence in the eyes of worship. I mean, the scripture says every knee will bow, every tongue confess. It doesn't mean that everyone is believing in God, that you have to acknowledge the truth. That's what the reality is. So I think those beings were. Well, you two messages. I'll, I'll say this, but in two messages, I think those beings were not good beings, but God gave them over to humanity because he knew that how they would lead and how they would lead people to disobey him. That's all I'll say right now. But we'll look at that intently in two, two weeks. That's a major theme in the Bible. That you have to, we have to understand that. So we'll see that in two weeks. When God said the other gods will fall like any prince, this designation of prince, is this an earthly prince or another type of heavenly being? That's another great question. So there is a designation of powerful supernatural beings called princes, and we see that in Daniel. When Daniel's praying and then in Daniel 10 and the angel shows up and says, look, man, I was, I was held up by the prince of Persia. And so Michael, the prince, uh, hold on. How do I want to say this? Because I'm going to talk about this next week. How do I want to say this? Yeah, so there are, there are designations of princes that are both earthly and, and supernatural. That statement is God is saying, the context is you will die like men, right? Like other princes. So God is saying to them, yes, you're, he says, you are sons of the most high God, all of you. But you're going to die like mere mortals is what he's getting at. 
So when he brings in princes, I think it's a, it's a human context. Because to, like, so Satan is called what? The prince of the earth, right? So there's a sense where, from God's perspective, even though humanity has kings, they're not really kings. There's only one king to them, right? So when he says that, that's a human context. But it does have supernatural significance, which we'll come back to <laughs> in two weeks. Um, is there anything more you can say about God's relationship with or attitude towards the other nations that were formed in the dispersion of Babel? All right, let's do this. All right. Here's what's interesting about that term, dispersing, right? So the first time we hear that is God dispersing the nations, right? So as a judgment, as a punishment, God disperses the nations throughout the world. And then we hear later on, as God is dealing with Israel, he says, I'm going to disperse you throughout the nations of the world as another punishment. So this theme of dispersion to the Jews is one of being scattered as a punishment in the judgment of God, right? So that's a theme that they would relate to and understand. So when they think of dispersion, they think of God putting us in the orbit. In fact, the dispersion is so significant that in the Gospels, and then it's called the dispersion, capital D, because they know that the, ten, the nation of Israel, the northern tribes, those 10 tribes, God dispersed them as a judgment against them in Assyria in 722 B.C., and they got, they, no one knows what happened to them. The Jewish community that we're aware of and the Jews are from the southern kingdom, Judah, and that's who Babylon, who, who, that's what the book of Daniel is about. Nebuchadnezzar took them, but then they lost to the Persians, and the Persians freed them and let them go back and rebuild the temple and be their own nation. That's what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is about. They're building the temple and rebuilding the wall, and they called themselves, Jews became a derivative, a nickname, because they came from Judah. That's how they understood who are the people of God. Oh, we're, we're people from Judah that were, oh, so you guys are the Jews. Okay. But the, the northern kingdom was dispersed, was punished. Was all, they don't, no one knows what happened to any of them, right? But when you get to the New Testament, what's interesting is the dispersion takes on a different claim. You got 1 Peter 1. What Peter says to the, to the elect exiles in Pontus, Galatia, and all these in the dispersion, right? James 1, he introduces himself as I'm talking to the Jews in the dispersion. So what's happening there is different. When the Old Testament, the dispersion becomes a means in which God is punishing the nations. But in the New Testament, the dispersion becomes a result of persecution that Jews are running in for their lives, but they take the gospel with them, and it becomes the means in which people share the gospel with other nations. So God takes a dispersion that he started as judgment to disperse the nations and now takes Christians and does the same thing through persecution, disperse, disperses them among the nations, but they are taking the gospel with them. So what God did is judgment in Genesis 11 at Babel, he does in redemption. So now, even though he uses persecution, the stuff with Nero and all these other things that happened in human history, the Jews running for their lives, but they still believe, and they're sharing the gospel. So he's writing 
James and Peter are writing letters to the Jews in the dispersion to draw them back to the punishment, but now this is different. Now you're there to, to, to influence those other nations. So don't be afraid. Don't be scared. That's what, that's what the letters are for. So the dispersion has, has some significance. That's the most I'll get into that. Um, the Lord's redeeming all of it. Like all this stuff, he's not, every, all of it, he's redeeming it. And over the next three weeks, you guys thought you heard a lot. The next three weeks will be like, man, this is crazy. It's all in the same book. Um, what is the difference between the supernatural beings or lesser gods of the Old Testament that people worshipped and the angels that are mentioned in the New Testament, which are mostly referred to in a positive way? I think the simplest answer is the angels in the Bible, like a Gabriel and people, they, they, they worship God. The angels that show up at the resurrection, they're there on behalf of God, and they believe in God, and they're, they're reminding people about God. They're, they're letting them out of prison, Peter and Paul out of prison, right? They're there on behalf of God. I think the, the but the, when it, so that's, the, so the context has to matter. When you hear sons of God or this or that, 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 the, actually, that language, we talked about this already, so I can say, that language changes in the New Testament. It doesn't focus on angels as the sons of God. It focuses on us. We become the sons of God and the daughters of God. We, that designation changes. So the angels that rebelled, it's like, okay, you guys rebelled. I'm going to give them the designation that would solely belong to you. And now these human beings who are less weaker than you, less intelligent than you, and all these things, they're going to be now the sons of God. So that language becomes a description of us in the New Testament even more than angels. So when you see it, it's usually in the Old Testament, usually, usually it's, de it's describing evil supernatural beings. But they still get the designation because they're still created by God. They're still sons of God, technically. All right. Um, in light of the fact that uh, God acknowledges that there are, there are other lowercase g gods, um, can you expound on what God means when he says he is the one true God? So God gives himself all these terms, like Alpha and Omega, right? The Most High God. Those are distinguishing terms where none of those gods can say anything close to that. Like they're, God is describing his sovereign authority over all the other beings. Like none of these other gods can claim that, and it'd be genuinely true. And the proof of this is, one major proof of this is, when you get to Luke 4 and Matthew 4, right? So... If you notice in the Old Testament, there's Baal, Asherah, uh, all, uh, all these other gods, right? Some of them we're going to look at in two weeks. But then when you get to the New Testament, everything is under Satan. But in the Old Testament, Satan is relatively absent. You don't hear a lot of them. It's Baal, Baal Peor, it's this, it's that, it's... But in the New Testament, all of a sudden, it's under Satan, one evil being that sort of everything is under. So how did that happen? We'll get to that in two weeks. But I'll say this. In the garden, or in the wilderness, when he's tempting Jesus, remember what he says. At one point, he says, all the kingdoms of the world have been given to me, and I can give them to whoever I want. Well, who could give Satan all the kingdoms of the world? 
who, who has that kind of authority? Like, he didn't get it from, it's not like Satan has a dad that was like, look, let me go ahead and give you these as my son. You know, like, he's the dad of all the evil beings. So it's not like he has a higher evil authority over him. So who could give him all the kingdoms of the world? Well, he gets them from God. At the dispersion, God's like, all right, you can have it. You can have it. So Satan was like, look, these have been given to me. I can give them to whoever I want. So what you see is in the Bible, there is this, these divine beings, they're gods in a sense, but they're limited in their authority. Even Satan himself, he was given these kingdoms, given them, and they can offer them to Jesus. The humorous part of that is it was Jesus who gave them to him. So if I give you something because I don't need it or want it, and then you give it back to me, well, I didn't need it. I didn't want it in the first place. That's, what, that's why people have, what's it called, white elephant, when you just be giving away gifts that you, I, I rebuke you if you give a white elephant gift to me, and you'll know. It's like, I don't want it. God's like, I, I gave you all of these. What do you, but he, but he didn't know to what degree Jesus was fully God or not, so he's testing him. Okay, if you are the son of God, if you are, well, he doesn't know to what degree Jesus is who he is. He doesn't know how powerful is this dude really. I know who you are, but who, what, what are your limitations? So if you are the son of God, then turn these stones to bread. And he's like, nope. Okay, I didn't work. Okay. Okay, I know you're here. Genesis 3.15, you're supposed to crush my head. That means you're going to probably take back these kingdoms. Okay, so I'm going to give them to you. Just got to bow down and worship me. You can have all these kingdoms. If you are the son of God, and he was like, no. He's like, man, this dude is a tough one. <laughs> he's like, all right, let's go through this hot thing. Jump off of this thing. I know people are going to worship you. I don't know. I know people are going to worship you somehow. Jump off of this high pinnacle, and angels will catch you. He's like, no. And he's like, man. All right, this dude, this is a tough one here. This dude is a gangster for real. All right, we got to come back and think about this. So it says that he looked for, he'll wait until an opportune time, right? There's just a reality there. So God relates to these other gods as divine beings that he gave a measure of authority with. But he makes distinctions. And even when you see in Jesus, you see these, these demons walk up and they get on their knees. You never hear any gospel story where Jesus interacts with the demons and they come in bold and like swinging or something. You know, when you see your arch enemy, what's the first thing you do? Oh, it's on sight. You know, it's on sight. That's my enemy. It's on sight. These dudes run up, and then they slide down to get on their knees. Jesus, what are you doing here? It's like, we're enemies. Where's the, where's the, you're not, you're not going to swing? We know who you are. Have you come to punish us before the They know what's going on. What makes it spiritual warfare is we don't know what's going on. We're more motivated by Hollywood movies that give supernatural evil beings all this power, and in the grand scheme of who God is, they're chumps for real. But for us, we think, oh, man, you know, and, and we don't understand what's going on, which is why this series is, 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 is alive, so that we can get, so that when we're done with this, like, okay, we got a full breadth of what's happening, and we're not afraid. We're not afraid. We're not afraid. We're not afraid to stand up in the face of any adversity because we know that this is real spiritual warfare, and not in this sort of intellectual sense, but like, no, in the functional reality of our day-to-day, -day, this is what's happening. These other religions around the world are, and they've, they've never gone anywhere. They've never gone anywhere. 
we looked at some of the origins of like Mesopotamian religions and some of the fruit of what they what they believed we see happening in our culture today. So I don't know if that answers the question. I got lost in this what I was talking about. Because I got all this stuff in my head and some I can't wait till this series is done. So I can just say I said all of it. Now anytime someone has a question, I don't gotta be like, no, wait. I can't wait. I can't read my Bible to say. I'm just like this. Oh man, Lord, should I talk? I just can't wait to be done with this so that I can be like, finally, I don't have to be like, Lord, I should teach this. Look at this. What is this? Look at this. I'll just, it's, it's fascinating, but it's also irritating. <laughs> All right, this is the last question. So if your question hasn't been answered and you're here, please feel free to see Pastor Kurt um, and ask him directly. Um, but uh, the question is, uh, since the Lord said that the uh, other gods, lowercase g, will die like princes, is that why um, other gods of myth um, and lore like Zeus uh, were once worshipped but aren't any longer because God has already destroyed them? So I think, you know, that's funny. That's a, that's a really, like, a deep theological question that people think. And, uh, yeah, this is the safest way to answer it. I think um, there's a degree in which God does things progressively, and then he does things conclusively, all right? So we're in the progressive revelation storyline where everything is not done yet. So there are things that God has done. Like, there are some gods that we would never hear about because God just ended those religions, ended the authority of those gods. There's some stuff that we will only find out if we really go like searching for all these gods of Mesopotamian religions and all this stuff. We just don't even hear about them. Like, so there's a degree in which some of these distinctions, gods and religions have been, they just died out. And they didn't just die out. I think God punished them. I mean, we see in the Old Testament, David was going around just wiping out like complete. Like, remember in 1 Samuel 15 when Saul was told, Saul was told to wipe out the Amalekites. Like, don't spare anyone, women, children, cattle, nothing. Saul was like, I want to blot them off. When God says, I'm going to blot them off of the face of the earth, like, he means it. So these, there are people groups that have just been destroyed as God's judgment. Remember what he told Jonah, right, Nineveh. He said, look, Nineveh is going to be destroyed in 40 days. You know what Nineveh is? Iraq. That's Iraq. Nineveh is northern Iraq. So it's like, hey, listen, it's going to be destroyed in 40 days, but then the people repented. So there's a, there's a sense in which God has destroyed some of that, but that's progressive, but then there's conclusive. Everything will be destroyed when we get to the end of Revelation, right, when he comes back. And, and you get to that scene in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, where God's on the throne, the books are open, if your name's not in the book, you go to the lake of burning fire, so Satan, death, and Hades will be thrown in there, and then that's done. And then when that's done, then it's just us. And the Lord, no more faith. You don't need any more faith. It's all sight. We see him. We get to be him. I don't have to have faith for nothing because he's just right there. I got a question. Let me just ask him. He's right there. He's a little busy. I think, you know, it's a lot as long, but you'll be on. You won't have a problem waiting in eternity. You'll be chilling, I'm sure. It'll be like, man, I can wait in that line, man. I'm waiting for this. Um, so, again, I think that, yeah, there is a degree in which some of this stuff is done, but then there's a degree in which it's not. And this is what the church is partly here for. This is why Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail over the church, because that church becomes the new target of these other divine beings, other supernatural beings. And you see them on. So I don't know how many. I'm going to say this and I'm going to be done. I, this is how crazy it gets, right? 
right now on Amazon. <laughs> you know where I'm going, right? You saw the video? <laughs> so there is, on Amazon right now, there is a thing called the Holy Spirit Board by, by, called, by an organization called Holy Spirit Games. This is a Christian Ouija board where it has a, the, the box has a picture of an old dude looking like, like the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7. They just always make God look like Santa Claus but in better shape. Just long hair, just an old dude. They got the cross as the, the thing that you move it around. And here's the disclaimer. Here's, here's what it says. It says stuff like this. Hear from the man himself directly. You got, okay, I'm, I'm sorry, I got to read this real quick because y'all think I'm playing. I'm not making this up. I like to crack jokes sometimes, but this is not even, this is, listen to what this says. This is on Amazon. I lied to you not. Holy Spirit, boy, don't, do not buy this, please. I'm not endorsing this. Listen to this. This is what the advertisement says. Here's what it says. This is no joke. You can't make this stuff up. It says, the Holy Spirit board is the only spirit board designed to directly contact our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Unlike other spirit boards that are often used to contact ghosts and demons, this is a one-way ticket straight to heaven. <laughs> Try it today and discover a new way to play. And then it has features and details. You can't make this stuff up. I'm reading this. I'm not making this up. I'm not that gifted, right? Get the answers you need. The Holy Spirit board can answer all of life's most important questions straight from the man himself. Then it describes it. Huge 12 by 18 game board with beautiful artwork featuring the crucifixion and the angels of heaven. Beautiful golden magic cross planchet with metallic mirrored finish. Perfect for churches, prayer groups, or just getting together with friends. Okay? And then it says this. This is, this is the kick. This is it right here for me. Unlike other spirit boards, this one will never, all caps, contact evil ghosts or demons. Wow. So you can ask your questions with an assured sense of safety. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're right. Hey, game night next Friday. <laughs> so for me, that says two things. One, the enemy is desperate because he's actually trying stuff like that. That's desperate. But then it also says, how weak is the church that he can get away with that? Because there are people who have bought him and liked him. He's got three and a half stars. Those people, not only do they need Jesus, they need real friends. You don't have real friends. A Christian Ouija board fam? That's just, that's just, but this is what's happening. This is what the attack is against us. And it's subtle. Hey, we promise. The fact that, you ever, it's like Eddie Murphy, you ever watch like, you, I know you get that. You guys ever watch like a, 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 a commercial for like some kind of um, like a drug or something for some type of ailment? And then you'll read the side effects. May cause dizziness, suicidal thoughts, cutting of veins. Uh, this, you know, and you read all the side effects and you're like, man, I'd rather just struggle with what I have rather than, you know, like you just don't even. It's like we promise it will never contact. The fact that you got to qualify that it won't contact demons is enough. It's like, fam, this is just, but this is what we, this is what we, and there, there are thousands of people, I think, that have bought this. I'm not endorsing it. If you come that, if you bring that to this church, we're going to have problems. When it says in, when it says in James, the elders will lay hands on you, this will be a different kind of laying hands. Do not do that. 
But this is what we're facing, though. This is, it's even stuff like this, and it's by a company called Holy Spirit Games. No, that company should be called Playing Games with the Holy Spirit. That's what they're really doing. But. So we live in this kind of world. That we're, the church is, is with the, that was against Israel, but now the nations are, the people are against the church. And, but they're not against us in the most militaristic way. It's subtle. It's, hey, you can do this. This is not a problem at all. And yet 28 girls were sent to the hospital that all used the Ouija board about two months ago. 28 girls were sent to the hospital because they used this thing and got attacked. 28, all at once. It was, it was crazy. I was like, wow. So, yeah, looking forward to the next game night. That's the stuff we're up against. And, you know, it's a game, so guess who it targets? The children. That's who gets targeted. It's the Christian youth group. It's like, oh, we should get this and have fun. It's, it's targeting that. It's, it's a wild time. But we'll get, we'll get into it over the next few weeks. So we rebuke the Holy Spirit games, and we rebuke the Holy Spirit board, and we accept this. We accept what Jesus has done on our behalf for real and not what is being told that we can do. That's crazy, the world we live in. This is insane. I'm sure, I mean, watch, I mean, you read the comments, you'll be like, wow, these people are serious? It's the best thing I've done, and I can't believe it. And it's like, man. Okay, well, we'll see what happens at the end. And hopefully these people, hopefully they obey the Lord. We're so entertained by you. Entertainment gets away with a lot of stuff. When we're entertained by something, it just we it, we just it, I, I've been deceived sometimes by just entertainment. If it's funny, if it's this, if it's that, if it if he can rap, if he can do this, if she, it's all that entertainment just snatches us. People just get pulled in by things that amuse us because if it amuses us and we enjoy it, it's not that bad of a thing, and that's a real serious ploy of the enemy. Real serious ploy of the enemy. Well, Lord, we just want to acknowledge before you as we are have been diving deep into your word in this supernatural storyline series and learning new things lord i thank you that i pray that you would help us to retain the types of things that we're hearing and lord i pray specifically especially for the next few weeks these themes that are in your word are so are so a part of your bible that they just we just understand so much more of it so i pray that you would help us to retain all of it. But we do all of these things. We teach this. We, we wrestle with understanding. We fight for truth. We, we read. We study. We pray. We do all these things because you, Jesus, because you came. You said, I'm going to make Abraham my portion, and then I'm going to become a human like Abraham. So that it takes real effect. And so you come. You live perfectly. You resist Satan in the garden. Where we fail consistently. You die without committing any sin. Brutal death. Your blood is spilled out, leaking from your body. Your body is ripped open by a whip. Broken. You die, agonizing for six hours on the cross. And then you rise from the dead, thus proving that not only did you commit no sin, 
That's why death couldn't hold you because death is only possible, only happens when we sin because we sin. Death is a judgment for sin. But you rose from the dead on your own. No one brought you back. You rose, you raised other people from the dead, but no one could raise you from the dead but you. And now, by your grace, many of us in this room believe in this. And even though at times it's a challenge, even though it's difficult sometimes to trust you or to understand what you're doing, sometimes if we're honest, we just don't like what you do, don't like how you do it. You still said, you know what, I'll take them. I'm allotting them to me. And so we, each Sunday, have the privilege of remembering what you've done to allot us so that we're a part of your inheritance. Which you have said in your word, we are, we are co-inheritors. You call us that as one of the names you call those who believe in you. We inherit the mercy and grace from your death and resurrection. So as those of us who genuinely believe in you, we hold this, Jesus, we eat this in memory of you. And Lord, as those who have been re-inherited, we drink this in memory of you. And Father, I ask that as we've heard countless things and connections and different things that we hadn't seen before, I pray, Lord, that, that this wouldn't become a game to us, that we turn the Bible into some game of making connections. These things that I'm bringing up are not just for fun and for but they're for faith. They're to build our faith and to see like, wow, you really tied up all the loose ends. You really did it. You didn't just, you did it. And while there's more for us to cover, Lord, I pray that we would not take lightly what we're reading, what we're hearing. And that we grow in more confidence to understanding that our Bible is not only true, but that what it says about us, it empowers us to be faithful, that we can actually grow because we believe what you put in your word. So help us to do that. May this not just be a game to us, but may it help us understand the games of the enemy for your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Having been here with the kids yesterday and watching them run around and be wild, I, I mean this with all sincerity. Thank those in children's ministry who were there serving. Uh, I know, but the kids are in a more controlled room. And thank those, if you remember, JP and uh, Tolu, Alicia, and Darren and Viviana weren't in here, but thank them for those of you who were there. They really served, and it was a great time. We appreciate it. We'll be doing that again on May 20th from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. Drop your kids off. Have fun. And we'll do the rest. All right? Don't forget about your core groups this week. And be praying, Lord willing. Next Sunday, we'll get into one of the most significant themes in the Bible that will explain a lot about who we are and how the world is next Sunday. All right? See you then.